0: Well, picture this with me. It's springtime in first century Palestine. Things are starting to bloom. The grass is getting green, starting to warm up a little bit. That which had been planted a couple of months before is starting to grow. There's a sense of hope and vitality in the air. It's also Passover time, and so spiritual interest is kind of peaked I once flew through the United Arab Emirates during Ramadan and you could tell just in conversations that I had with people in the airport that their spiritual ears were kind of a little more attuned during that time. That would have been the case during Passover time in first century Palestine. Additionally, Jesus is growing in popularity in His ministry, in His teaching, in His healings, so much so, and we'll find this out here in a minute, that He's drawn a crowd of probably about 20,000 folks. I've said this before, it's kind of like Jesus Bieber at this point, He has got a fan base. The disciples, have just returned from their own ministry. Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them the power to uh, get rid of demons and heal people. And they've come back and reported to Jesus all of what they had seen and done. And so the fact that they reported what they had seen and done to Jesus means that something cool happened. They saw and did some amazing things, so they would have been excited as well. But with all that hope in the air and with all kind of that spiritual interest in the air during Passover time and the disciples excitement and Jesus popularity Jesus is also grieving he's grieving very very deeply as a matter of fact because Herod who was kind of a ruler or a governor at that time in ancient Israel was a crazy man he was a violent man he was an immoral man and Jesus cousin John called him out on that immorality And as a result, Herod made an unfortunate choice. Unfortunate is uh, an understatement for sure. To behead John and present John's head on a platter to a young girl at a dinner. Jesus has just lost his cousin, his best friend, uh, one of the prophets that the people had looked to in ancient Israel. And it's at this moment that Jesus, wants to get alone and grieve. So he goes to a desolate place, and Luke chapter 9 tells us it's a place called Bethsaida, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He he wants to be alone. He withdraws from the crowds. Many of us do the same thing when we're grieving. We don't want to be around people. Partying is the last thing we want to be doing at that time. But though Jesus wants to get alone and grieve, someone spots him. It's kind of like a TMZ photographer, right? And someone uh, publishes, not on the internet, of course, that Jesus is sailing in a boat uh, toward that uh, Bethsaida point on on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And crowds begin to follow him. In fact people leave their towns and go on foot to find Jesus and they're clamoring for him and they're just waiting for him to come ashore. And so when he does, once again, Craig Bloomberg tells us in his commentary on Matthew chapter 14, that there are likely about 20,000 people waiting for Jesus. So in his grief and his desire to be alone, Jesus has compassion. Literally, the Bible tells us that his insides were stirred up within him because he saw that the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. So he begins to heal them, and he begins to teach them. And one after another, Jesus is ministering out of his emptiness, his grief, even his loneliness, to the crowd that's gathered That needs him. About three o'clock in the afternoon, his disciples come to him and like, okay, Jesus, here, here's the deal, man. You've done your job for the day. We know you wanted to get to this desolate place and grieve. This is a desolate place, but in order to make it a desolate place, you've got to send these folks away. In other words, they don't got to go home, but they can't stay here. As a matter of fact, Jesus, uh, we have no food to feed these people, and it's come to that second meal of the day in ancient Israel. There were only two, breakfast and now this meal and you've gotta send them into the towns and the surrounding villages to get, so they can get something to eat and get lodging. Jesus' response here is really fascinating. He says, you give them something to eat. In fact, in Matthew's account, that you is emphatic. You give them something to eat. It's funny, he's probably hearkening back to the miracles that the disciples had just seen in their own ministry that they had done without Jesus. He's like, you can do this. You give them something to eat. Philip responds. He's like, Jesus, we don't have anything. Jesus' response, his question, which we'll come back to shortly, is what do you have? Philip's response is, "I I don't know. I don't know what we have. Jesus says, we'll go find something. And they do. They find a young boy with a sack lunch. He's got five loaves of barley bread and a couple of fish. So Philip brings it to Jesus. Jesus asks the crowd to be seated. And he takes this meal enough to feed maybe 10 people. In this case, it was just the boy's lunch for the day. And he takes the bread, looks up to heaven, and he says a prayer. He blesses it. He breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples and says, now give it to the crowds who have been seated by this point. And the bread and the fish begin to multiply. They multiply once and then twice and then three times and again and again and again. And before you know it, the writers of the gospel tell us that everybody who was there ate and was satisfied. In fact, in two particular accounts in the gospels, uh, the the word there in the original Greek is, they were gorged, right? They were full like this, like And in first century Palestinian culture in an agrarian place where most people are poor, they didn't eat till they were gorged ever. I mean, this was a really unique and special situation. I mean, everybody had all they wanted. And in fact, Jesus now looks at his disciples and he goes, now you go start picking up leftovers. And they're going, leftovers? We don't, we don't even have a Greek word for leftovers. Because of course, they wouldn't have ever had leftovers in an impoverished culture like that. The disciples end up picking up 12 baskets full. The original Greek word there is not a small basket, but a large basket full of leftovers. The writers of the Gospels tell us that 5,000 men and women and children ate and were satisfied. Again, Craig Bloomberg points out that this was probably close to about 20,000 people that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish with 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now, real quick side comment here, and then we'll come back. But we just finished a series called Foundations, in which we took a look at Jesus through the eyes of the Old Testament. So let me just give you just a couple little tidbits that you can work with on your own here. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, twelve baskets. Moses gave people bread in the wilderness, the manna that they needed for daily sustenance. Jesus here is giving the crowds bread in the wilderness. Remember, they're in a desolate place. Do you see how Jesus is creating kind of an Israel 2.0? It's a, it's a new definition of God's community that Jesus is creating out here in the wilderness. I'm not gonna get into that too much today, but I wanted to just give you that little bit of information. Uh, put it in the, the old crock pot, let it cook for a little while, see what comes out. What I I do want to do is ask you a really quick uh, trivia question. This is for your next uh, Jeopardy contest with your spouse, all right? There are two and only two miracles that are recorded in all four biographies of Jesus. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. Those are the four biographies of Jesus that are included in the New Testament. And there are two and only two miracles that are recorded in all four of them. Do you know what they are? Well, you can already tell that this is the first one, right? The second one is the resurrection itself. No other miracle is recorded by all four gospel writers. Why? I mean, if you were writing a biography of the life of Jesus, you had seen him heal uh, Jairus' daughter and say, Talitha kum, a little girl get up in Aramaic, and this dead girl got up if you had hear, heard him say, Lazarus, come forth, if you had seen him touch and heal a leper, if you had seen him give sight to the blind and make the lame man walk, wouldn't that be the one that you chose? I mean, all four of these guys have curated their content for us for a very specific purpose. In fact, in John chapter 20, he tells us that if we would to write down everything Jesus ever did, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold that many books. There are more things that he did, so why? Why do all four writers choose to include this miracle here? It's because there's something special about this moment. There's something special that reflects the heart and character of Jesus It captures the essence of all people involved, the essence of Jesus and His mission in the world, the essence of God and His extravagant grace and abundant provision. It captures even the essence of the disciples and, unfortunately, us too. There is something unique and special about this moment, and that's what we're here to discover today. Remember, uh, we pointed to D.A. Carson last week who, who said this about Jesus' miracles. He said, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So what is happening here in this miracle as it's recorded in Matthew 14, John 6, Mark 6, and Luke 9? What are those authors of Scripture trying to point us to in terms of a spiritual reality? And there are a lot of things that we could point to in this text, a lot of applications we could pull out. We could talk about Jesus' life-work balance here. Uh, We could talk about the ways in which Jesus plans His own life rhythms. We could talk about how the disciples respond. We could talk about all kinds of different things. But for me, really, the core and the essence of this miracle is reflected in two mindsets. Two mindsets. And the first mindset adopted by the disciples is what I'm going to call a not enough mindset. I mean, over and over and over, and I'm going to point to the scripture here in a minute, but the disciples tell Jesus, we don't have enough. We don't have enough food. In fact, they tell Jesus, where are we going to get 200 denarii, 200 days worth of wages to feed these people? We don't have enough. Let me just stop giving you examples. Let's just go straight to the scripture. Let's look at the disciples' not enough. Mindset as recorded by the four authors of the Gospels. John chapter 6. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to get them just a little. 200 days worth of wages. If we use that to purchase bread, it would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, John 6, verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Here's the first thing we know about a not enough mentality. A not enough mentality is a comparison mentality. Did you see how the disciples are comparing what they have to what problem is facing them? We have this and it's humble and meager and we have this big problem. And in God's economy, comparison is not the right game to play. As a matter of fact, there are only losers in the comparison game. The disciples are comparing what they have to what they're facing. And in a not enough mentality, we get caught up in a comparison game. We're going to talk about application here in a minute, but you can already be thinking about this, I'm sure. That at work, when someone's kind of in that not enough mentality, when they turn into Eeyore, you know the Eeyore at work. Oh, Lucas. I don't have enough time, and I don't have enough budget, and I don't have enough support from my coworkers. Ooh. That's my ER impression, by the way. It's like, where are Tigger and Pooh, man? Like, you're all about comparing yourself to others or comparing what you have to the problem that you face, and in God's economy, that doesn't work. Let's keep going. How else are the disciples falling into the it's not enough mentality? Now the day began to wear away, and twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're going to go buy food for all these people. So the it's not enough mentality results in comparison, but the it's not enough mentality doesn't find a way to solve problems. It just finds a way to make problems go away. Did you see that? That the disciples come to Jesus and they don't say, hey, clearly God is a God of abundance. Clearly you can do miracles. We just experienced our own when you sent us out to do our own miracles. What are we going to do to feed these people? You know what they do is they say, send them away. Send them to town, send them to the surrounding villages, send them away. I don't know if you know these types of people that operate in a scarcity mentality. They don't ever solve problems. They just try to sweep it under the rug. They just ignore it. They don't ever do anything about it. See, this is where the disciples are at. Let's keep going. Same miracle as recorded by uh, Matthew in chapter 14, verse 15. It says, now it was evening. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. You see the disciples say the very same thing, but did you see what Matthew told us there? It was evening. The other authors of the gospel tell us something similar. The day had begun to war on. It started to get late in the day. In other words, the it's not enough mentality is a too little, too late mentality. It's a comparison mentality. It's a sweep the problems under the rug mentality. And it's a it's too late mentality. It's too late for my kid. They've walked away from the faith. It's too late for my marriage. It's just going to come apart. It's too late for my career. It's too late in my life for me to make a difference in the body of Christ. It's too late in the day for us to do anything about this, Jesus. It's too late. Can you see how we already get caught up in this mentality? Mark 6 tells us this. The disciples say, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, and here's the critical question. Listen so close because I think this is fascinating. How many loaves do you have? The disciples don't have an answer. Jesus says, Go and see. And when they had found out, that's how I know they didn't have an answer. When they had found out, they had to go look how many loaves they had. They said five and two fish. See, here's the deal. When you're caught in an it's not enough mentality, you don't even know what you've got. Well, how much money do you got? How much time do you got? What kind of talents do you have? What can you do? You may not have 200 denarii. You may not have 5,000 loaves of bread. You may not have 10,000 fish to feed all these people. But what do you have? I don't know. I don't know. See that's the it's not enough mentality and that's where the disciples are operating. But there are two people in this text too that are operating in God takes my not enough and turns it into leftovers mentality. God takes my not enough and turns it into leftovers because of his abundance because of his miraculous provision if i just offer him my humble meager thing he can turn it into super abundance he can take my not enough and turn it into leftovers i don't know about you but i grew up in a leftovers kind of house my dad Sorry, Dad, that I'm calling you out because I know he watches every Sunday. My dad does not know how to cook for six people. He knows how to cook for 60 people. That's how my dad works. I'll come over to my parents' house for dinner when I'm in Phoenix, and there'll be four or five people over at the house, and my dad will go, well, I got eight steaks. Well, eight steaks, Dad, for four people? Well, just in case someone wants a little bit of leftovers, a little bit of something extra. Okay, all right, I get that. You want to have more than enough to go around. But why are there sausages and chicken and hamburgers in the fridge too, Dad? Well, you know, I like to have a little bit of variety just in case somebody doesn't like steak. I want to have, so why do you have eight chickens in the refrigerator, Dad? Nobody's going to eat eight chickens. Well, yeah, but if nobody wants steak or burgers or sausages and everybody just wants chicken, I got to have enough chicken to go around and have leftovers. It's like, Dad, you're not cooking for the Grecian army here. Like, you're not, you're not cooking for the the, 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 the country of, you know, whatever. Like, Dad, you're cooking for four people. And so there are always leftovers in my parents. I mean, bags and bags and bags of leftovers. I think my dad could have performed this miracle. You know I'm joking about that. But it's my dad's, that's his kind of deal. And in this particular case, you're not ever going to experience that super abundance of God's grace. His leftovers and his leftovers are really good. Just a side note, leftover day is my favorite day in my house. I love leftovers so much. But you're not going to experience that in your life unless you come in with a God can take my not enough and turn it into leftovers mentality. So who in the passage comes in with this mentality? First, it's a little boy with the sack lunch, isn't it? Because it's not enough mentality is a comparison mentality. Jesus, my sack lunch could never feed all these people. It's not enough mentality. It doesn't even know what you have. He knew exactly what he had, five loaves, two fish. And it's not enough mentality is a too little, too late mentality. This little boy doesn't say it's too late in the day, Jesus. He just gives his sack lunch away. And it's, it's, it's not enough mentality, finds a way for problems to go away. It doesn't find a way to solve problems. This little boy just says, here, he offers his meal, his meager, small meal, and God multiplies it to feed close to 20,000 people with leftovers. There's one other person in the passage, I don't know if you noticed, that comes in with a God will take mine not enough and turn it into leftovers mentality. And that's Christ himself. Remember that Jesus didn't come into this situation full Emotionally, he came in hurting, grieving the loss of one of his good friends. He's only here in Bethsaida because he wants to get away from the crowds. And I don't know about you, but for me, especially in vocational ministry, when people come and they need something, they need pastoral care, they need counseling, they need a listening ear, people want me to preach or something like that, and I feel depleted. It's easy for me to get caught up in the it's not enough mentality. What I have is not enough. A lot of times I don't even know what I have or I get caught up in the comparison game or I just want to make problems go away rather than find a way to solve problems. And Jesus leads us here by saying, even though I feel depleted, if I come and offer my broken, weary, grieving self, my heavenly father can take my not enough and turn it into his super abundance. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I want to close with two questions here, and we'll be done. First, where do you have a not enough mentality? Where are you getting caught in the comparison game? Where do you feel like God will never be able to solve this? I'm not enough. I don't have enough to fix my marriage. I'm not enough. I don't have enough to solve my mental health issues. I'm not enough, and I don't have enough to walk alongside my child and parent them well. I'm not enough. Listen, friends, this is what we learned from this extraordinary meal with Jesus The only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels other than the resurrection itself is that God will take your not enough and turn it into leftovers. Miraculously turn it into super abundance. So can you identify? Can you think? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it in your spiritual life, your emotional life, your relational life? Where do you feel that you don't have enough? Where are you getting caught in the trap of the it's not enough mentality? Once you've identified that, I want to ask you a second question. Here's the second question, and it's the question that Jesus asks His disciples. I think it's an extraordinary question. Here's what He says. What do you have? I mean, do you even know? What do you have? And can you bring it to God, your humble meager, small, broken, weary self? What do you have? Luke, I'm getting caught up in the it's not enough mentality in my marriage. I don't have enough to listen to my spouse. He's unemotional and cold. She's emotional and hot. I don't know. I don't know what you think of your spouse, right? I just don't have enough. I'm so frustrated. Okay, so you're getting caught in it's not enough mentality. So what do you have? You may not have what it takes to sit and listen and understand, but do you have a hand that you can reach across and hold your spouse's hand? God can take that not enough and turn it into leftovers with your child who's gone off the rails in university. You know, they went to Western or something, I don't know. And they've just gone crazy and they've, they've left the faith and uh, their university professors have got to them and the worries of the world have got to them and the temptations of what's going on have got to them. And you're like, I don't have enough. I don't have enough to bring them back. I don't have enough to, to instruct them. I don't have enough in terms of answers. What do you have then? Stop telling me and stop telling God, quite frankly, what you don't have. That's it, it's not enough mentality. What do you have? Do you have a cell phone? You send him a text every day. God loves you today and so do I. Because God can take that meager five loaves and two fish and feed thousands upon thousands and enough to have leftovers. With your money, do you look and say, I don't have enough? I don't have enough to give any away. I don't have enough to be generous. I don't have enough to give to my local church. And it's not even Bayview Glen. I know many of you don't even attend Bayview Glen Church. You are involved with other local churches. I don't have enough to give away to a child sponsorship organization. I don't have enough to be generous. We get caught up in that not enough mentality. Can I just throw a stat at you real quick? If you've got two adults and two children living in your home and you make $30,000 a year, one income, not two income, one income, $30,000 a year, you are richer than 77% of the world's population. And let's say you gave 10% away. Let's say you did something crazy like 10%. Now you're richer than 75% of the world's population. You're still in the top quarter of richest people in the world. Forbes Magazine's never gonna put you in there, but we've got more than enough. We've got a lot more than we think. And when we bring our not enough, God can turn that into leftovers, super abundance for the sake of the kingdom of God. I love this application when it comes to even the way we steward our money because listen to what Jesus does. Not only does he take this very small, very humble offering and God multiplies it and feeds thousands, but there are leftovers. And what do they do? Leave them on the ground for the birds to eat? No. Because the superabundance of the kingdom of heaven always is coupled with a careful allocation and stewardship of resources. Nothing goes to waste in the kingdom of heaven. Even (laughs) abundant thinkers know full well that they need to steward God's resources carefully. See, I don't know. It's parenting, it's in your marriage, in your mental health, with your money. I don't know where you're getting caught in the it's not enough mentality. But the simple question that Jesus wants to ask you today is this. What do you have? Bring it. Because God can take your not enough and turn it into leftovers. I want to close in kind of a unique way today. I would invite you to just close your eyes right where you're at. And I want to read this account to you one more time from Matthew chapter 14. Maybe now that we've kind of looked into it, understood it a little bit more, my prayer is that God would bring something to mind as I read Matthew chapter 14. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there on a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. May God bless you today.